We began to study 2 Corinthians for our fall sermon series last Sunday. 2 Corinthians was the most personal and emotionally intense letter Paul ever wrote to a church. As Paul had a hard time with constantly disrespecting and misbehaving Christian uh, Corinthians, he struggled, but much more, he showed us the high truths of God that help him love and serve them ever more faithfully. Like Paul, we have a hard time in this unprecedented pandemic, and I want us to overcome this challenging time with the same high truths of God. Last Sunday, we learned about God's comfort, which not only soothes us, but also strengthens us to comfort others. Today, we will see the second high truth of, of God that teaches us how to walk in our hard times. According to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we, when we walk with our God, we march with Him in His triumph. We march with Christ in His triumph. Triumphal procession of a victorious general is the main metaphor of today. Let me read our text today and then explain the context and the meaning of the marching with the Christ. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord has opened the door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as a captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of a knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma that gives, uh, brings uh, uh, death, to the other than aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with a sincerity as those sent from God. Now, context of this text is a Paul's thanksgiving and digression. And the first let me explain something important about Paul as a writer. Apostle Paul was undoubtedly one of the greatest writers in history. And his writings made up one-third of the entire New Testament. And one of his rhetorical excellence is digression. Digression. Do you like a digression? Do you like when somebody said, by the way, how do you respond? You know, uh, one of my family members constantly tell me, get to the point, get to the point, get to the point. You know? I like a digression when it comes from somebody brilliant. I learn more about theology in digression than in, in the classrooms or formal lectures. In my casual conversation with the professors and theologians in their office hours and coffee breaks, I learn more about God. While some of us and many contemporary Americans don't like a digression as a sidetracking from the main point, let me tell you this clearly. Ancient people saw digression as a sign of a great rhetorical elegance 
and creative storytelling. Homer, for instance, was a regular user of a digression. So was a Cicero. And Cicero even you know, claimed and showed how to do digression right using the thesis to hypothesis. So to ancient writer, note this, digression was not distraction, but deliberate discourse. Digression was not distraction, but a deliberate discourse. And uh, Ray Bradbury, the author of Fahrenheit 451, how many of you read the foreign, I'm sorry, 451, that famed you know, novel, he actually uh, rightly noted this. He said, digression is a soul of a wit. Take the philosophies aside away from Dante, Milton, and the ghost of a hemless father, all stays, all we have is a dry bones. So mark of a master of a digression is the ability to escort uh, and enrich the speech away from the stated theme and then get back to the story with a grace. So let me show you where Paul digressed and where he returned. So verse 12, Paul said, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found the Lord has opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went to Macedonia. Now, why was Paul anxiously looking for Titus at Troas and later in Macedonia? He sent Titus to Corinth as his envoy to assess how Corinthians were doing after Paul's second visit. Paul's second visit to Corinth didn't go well. When Paul confronted some of the troublemakers that he mentioned in the first Corinthians, such as the people of different factions, and then there was a guy who had an incestual relationship with the wife of his father, not his real mother, but uh, you know, put, you know, uh, relationally uh, uh, his mother or stepmother. And also there are some church members who took the other church members to secular court for the business dispute. So Paul confronted these people and their response to Paul's pastoral guidance was a negative. And that's when Paul sent, uh, sent uh, another letter called the letter of pain. And instead of visiting them again, Paul decided to send the Titus in his place to monitor the situation. Because another you know, bad confrontation will really sour already exacerbated relationship. So during that whole time, Apostle Paul was waiting and restless. And there's so much so that he couldn't do what he loved the most, which was establishing church in Troas. Even though the door of opportunity was open, Paul was so concerned about Corinthian church that he started looking for Titus. And then finally, Apostle Paul met Titus in Macedonia. And he, Titus brought a good report that Corinthians were repentant. Since the last disastrous meeting with Paul, and Paul was ecstatic. That's why today, you know, he was saying the thanks be to God. But where does you know Titus bring the thankful report to Paul? Today's text doesn't show, but look at the Second Corinthians chapter seven verse five. Let's show the Second Corinthians chapter seven verse five. For when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest but we are harassed at every turn, 
Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Now, look at me. Paul sidetracked from chapter 2, verse 13, and returned to main intent of a letter, five chapters later, later chapter 7, verse 5. What does it mean? The section of uh, chapter 2, verse 14 to chapter 7, verse 4 is a sidetrack. The whopping six chapters were a distraction. So if the direct line of the story of this, very, this letter would be chapter 2, verse 13, and then chapter, two, chapter 7, verse 5. If you skip this entire section of a digression, which is a chapter 2, verse 14 to chapter 7, verse 4, and read a chapter 7, 5, chapter 7, verse 5, you will see a whole storyline more clearly. Now, without this distraction, I must tell you, 2 Corinthians would be a, just a regular letter, regular mundane business correspondence. But as you will see in the next several weeks, Paul's digression is a delightful and deeply insightful. I thank God for his divine digression. And by the way, we can see here the Paul's pastoral heart in today's text. As soon as he heard the Corinthians were sorry and repentant, Paul burst into thanksgiving that thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's you know, triumphal procession. Paul was so ecstatic with the Corinthian church's repentance. And he decided to share his relief and renewed joy with a familiar analogy of a Roman triumphal procession. So to understand today's text, we need to learn a few things about the Roman tribal procession. First of all, Romans, they love the victory parade and party. Who wouldn't? It's a dream of all Dallas Cowboy fans to have a Super Bowl you know, victory or Rangers, you know, uh, uh, Rangers too late, right? Or Dallas Stars. I know they're Stanley Cups and they survived you know, one, one game. I'm pessimistic, guys. I'm sorry. Dallas is known for all the, ah, we're going to win, we're going to win. And they're, you know, started with a Cowboy. I'm sorry. That's the, my experience of Dallas. What happened to Dallas? You know, I haven't seen any team winning anything. All right. I know some Dallas sites are very resentful right now, but may God have a mercy on you. Roman triumphal process was a dream of every Roman general, for it was the highest honor bestowed upon victorious general. It was the peak of a Roman aristocrat's career. The procession was granted and paid for by the Roman Senate, and it was enacted in the city of Rome. Roman Senate did not throw a triumphal procession just to any uh, victorious you know, general. They had a very specific stipulation or qualification. For instance, general must have a certain high rank. He has to be commander of an independent, large-sized army. And also, he has to win a major land or sea battle in an area of his whatever Roman providence or future Roman providence and at least kill 
5,000 foreign enemies. Not a domestic enemy. Civil war, they didn't celebrate. Civil war victory, they didn't celebrate. It has to be 5,000 deaths of uh, foreign, and, uh, foreign soldiers. And also ending the war. Now, let me show you a picture drawn during the uh, Renaissance period about this uh, trumpet, you know, uh, procession. So let's show the whole picture first. Can you see the whole picture? The ceremony began, uh, uh, ceremony began the solemn procession. If you see far left, that's a triumphal, triumphal gate. And there they use dart. So this picture is a just starting the triumphal procession. And then they go, they go or they, uh, and then the final destination is a far at the end. You see this a white, you know, dome look like a building. That is a temple of Jupiter on the Capitol. So passing through the forum and the Via Sagra or Sacred Way, that means all the major avenue of Rome adorned with a garland and they lined up with the people shouting the Lo Triumpe, Lo Triumpe, which means in, in Latin means he won, he won, he won for us kind of thing. And then so magistrate and the members of the Senate came first in the procession, followed by the musician. Do you see the woman dancing in the, the right there? And uh, Music, uh, musicians and the sacrificial animals and, and the spoils of a war and captures prisoners in chain. The Romans also made a 3D props of ships and fortresses that they destroyed. So they're kind of, a, you know, kind of making everybody to imagine the glorious victory. And then the mirror right there, riding in the chariot decorated with a laurel, led by, pulled by these uh, two, two white horses, or actually four white horses, according to the literature. The victorious general called the Triumphator wore the royal purple and gold tunic and, and toga, holding a laurel branch in his right hand and the ivory scepter on the left, followed by his family. Do you see a lady with her children on hands? That's his wife and children. And this, it doesn't show right here, but the slave, held a golden crown over the general's head while repeatedly whispering to general's ear that in the midst of his glory, that you are just a mortal man. You are just a mortal man. You are not God. You are not God. Why? Because euphoria was so high, he could easily confuse himself as a God. <laughs> so they Romans, they don't want him to have this, you know, hubris. Or, uh, and then that hubris might lead to temptation of a treason. So they, they, they hire this uh, so, you know, a slave to whisper his ears that you are just man, you're just lucky, you just, you know, you just receive the for good fortune. Then the, finally, the generals, soldiers march last, singing whatever they like with a full military uniform. And on reaching the capital temple, the general presented his laurel along with a thanks of a thanksgiving offering to the to the status uh, statue of a Jupiter, and then prisoners, usually the kings uh, or the generals of a foreign army that he defeated, were slain or strangled, and the rest of the family was auctioned off as slaves. And ceremony concluded with a feast for the uh, for the magistrate and senate and sometime entire city. Many famed Roman generals, they boast how extravagant 
their triumphal procession wore. For instance, Octavian or Caesar Augustus celebrated a procession for three days and barbecue party for everyone. According to historian, there are 350 recorded triumphal procession in Greco-Roman literature. Now, with this familiar ritual of a victory and honor, Paul now transfers us to this ultimate triumphal procession of Christ, our King of Kings and Lord of the Lord. In this in, here, Paul identifies with the three particular personnel in the, in the parade. And each one of these participants in the triumphal procession reveals God's high truth for us. The first thing Paul points out here is not that we are marching with Christ as a soldier, but guess what? As what? Those of you read verse 4, you know, pay attention. As a prisoners of a war. P-O-W. Look at the verse 14. Thanks be to God who always lead us as a captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Paul does not represent himself as a garlanded victorious general, nor as a soldier in Christ's army who shares the, his glory. Quite opposite, he portrayed himself as a conquered prisoner on display and who was about to die or already dead in his spirit. Yeah. So why does Paul say that we are captives and prisoners of Christ? What does it mean we are captives of Christ? Before we were the followers of Christ, we were his enemies. We resisted his reign in our life. We rebelled against his authority. Romans 5.10, Paul said this, while we are God's enemy, we are reconciled to him through the death of his son. We used to be God's enemies. Don't forget that. We are rebels. If some of us who grew up in the Christian homes and churches since childhood think that I'm not an enemy of God, I always like God, let me ask you this question. What was your first thought when you hear God called, God's call to obey? When you hear God saying, forgive others, think of others and their needs ahead of your own. Give tithing. Reach out to non-Christian friends with a kindness and sacrifice. What is your first thought? Do you say, praise the Lord, that's what I've been waiting for? Or would you say, pardon me, what did you just say? It is our fallen human nature, sinful instinct to resist God. While we don't mind God saving us and loving us, we don't want God to reign us. We, we want our independence, our autonomy, our freedom to be whatever we want to be. Along with God I like. You know, last Friday, daily breath was in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, which says, God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace, and this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of the time. And uh, I didn't share with a group because there's so many other things to share, but you know, many American evangelical Christians take the only first part of the gospel 
in 2 Timothy 2, 9. That is, God has saved us. And then many Christians, they forget the second part. God also called us to holy life. What is a holy life? Holy life is not just attending church or going to the church when you feel like it. Holy life means living according to God's purpose and will and grace. Holy literally means set apart or wholly different. We cannot live a holy life without surrendering our hearts and wills to God. So captives of Christ are those whose wills and life are conquered by Christ. Let me repeat that. Captives of Christ are those whose whose heart and will and life are conquered by Christ. Our commentator says on this verse, your triumph as a Christian does not begin until Christ triumphs in your heart and soul. Your triumph as a Christian does not begin until Christ triumphs in your heart and soul. So let me ask you this question. Is Christ winning in your heart or is he struggling? Is it like a long haul? Almost losing the game and coming back at the last minute? Or is he really overwhelming the game? I hope Christ is not like a long horn. I hope Christ is like, I don't know who is the other dominant team, you know, Crimson? Tiger? You know, that's the testimony of all great Christians in history. Dwight L. Moody said this, Let God have your life and he can do more with it than you can. Isn't that true? God can do much more with my life than I can do. You know, uh, D.L. Moody, once he prayed to God this, Lord, I cannot give you the whole world, but I can give you my whole heart. Would you use it for your glory? That is a famous, you know, D.L. Moody's prayer. And the Spurgeon also said this, when your will is God's will, you will have your will to the fullest. Yes, when you find God's will for your life and you align your life with God's will, you will have a God's power and encouragement and resources. And you will have a, your will will be much better than what you planned. And the great missionary thinker, Andrew Murray, said this, God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life wholly yielded to him. God assumes a full responsibility for anybody fully surrendered to Him. Don't be afraid of surrendering your life to God. God will take the full responsibility and will bless it. You know, when I became a Christian, I began to read a Bible. And for the first time in my life, I began to really read a Bible and enjoy every part of it. I remember that reading a book of Proverbs, I really loved the book of Proverbs until I read a Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. Proverbs 69 said, In their heart, humans uh, plan their course, but the Lord established their steps. I really didn't like this verse because I felt like God overrules my choices at the end if my plan is different from His plan. So I was kind of, uh, ah, he's a, he's the, God, is a, God is overpowering me. You know, he's overruling my choices. But guess what? After years of experiencing God's leading my steps, I don't want my plan. 
I want God's steps. My first choice is to surrender my plans to God. I'm not doing anything until God tells me. And actually, I'm scared when I do something on my own. On my own because I know how wise and wonderful God is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Cost of Discipleship, said this. It's a long quote, so let's look at it. The cross is laid on every Christian. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or maybe a death like Luther, Martin Luther, who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Christ, Jesus Christ. Death of our old human nature at his call. Jesus summons the rich young man was calling him to die because only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. In fact, every command of Jesus is called to die with all our affections and lust. But we do not want to die. And therefore, Jesus and his call are necessarily our death as well as our life. When Jesus called rich young man to, and commanded him to give his wealth to the poor and then follow him, Jesus was actually telling him to kill his false god that Carmen shared from the book that counterfeit God. And because you cannot follow Jesus and false God together. Jesus telling him to give up your wealth, then you will receive true wealth of God from me. You know, whenever God asks us to release or surrender whatever is in our hands and heart, it's because God wants us to receive better blessing and greater wealth. Amen? Martin Luther said this, God creates everything, God created out of, uh, uh, everything out of nothing. Therefore, until man is nothing, God can make a nothing out of him. When we recognize we are nothing without God's grace and request God to have mercy on us, God starts making something beautiful out of us. Once again, when I become nothing, God becomes everything. Amen. Second person that Paul identifies here is an incensor. Roman triumphal procession always had a state priest who tried to utilize occasion in order to maximize their religion. They, they tried to say how supreme God of a Greek pantheon, Jupiter or Zeus, blessed Rome. And they participated in the procession as an incense spreader, incense press, spread, spread, uh, 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 spreader. If you have got, attended a Roman Catholic uh, worship service or uh, Eastern Orthodox worship service or even Episcopalian worship service, they always begin their worship with a march. And, uh, you know, uh, and then priest enters with the incense, you know, kind of uh, swing the incense, whatever that uh, thing. And now, look at the verse 14. He uses us, God uses us to spread the aroma of a knowledge of Him everywhere. 
For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to our? Who is equal to such a task? Here, Paul repeated the word aroma four times. God uses us as His aroma. That means we are not only prisoners of Christ; we are perfumes, perfume of Christ as incense and incensors. Paul noticed. That this incense of Christ or aroma of Christ has a dual meaning. It is a smell of a life and the smell of death, depending on who. To the captive, it is a small smell of incoming death, but to Romans, it's a smell of a sweet life will be followed by the 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 uh, victory celebration and barbecue party and feast. Likewise, incense of Christ has a two significance: it pleases God, and it pricks other people who don't like God. Yes, the smell of God or aroma of God, it both pleases God and also pricks those who don't don't want God's way in their life. You know, verse fifteen here: the aroma that brings death and aroma that brings life. The Greek word, Greek text is literally aroma from death to death, aroma from life to life. That's actual Greek word, aroma from death to death, aroma from life to life. And Clement of Rome, the second century church father, interpreted these phrases to mean this way: unbelievers regarded the preaching of Christ's death on the cross as a foolishness and stumbling. Therefore, their response will result in their own death. So that's where the death to death. But believers, on the other hand, they view the cross not merely as a death, but something that gives us life of God through His forgiveness. Thus, their response leads to greater life or eternal life. Now, these dual effects of a gospel aroma were not something new, but very old from the beginning. If you remember God's call and promise. Uh, to Abraham in Ab- uh, uh, Genesis chapter twelve, what did God say? I'll make you into great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. I will. You will be a great blessing. And then God said, "What? I'll bless those who bless you. I will curse whoever you know. Uh, curse uh, whoever you curse, and all the people on earth will be blessed through you." Abraham became not only God's great blessing but also a great curse. Whoever rejected Abraham and Abraham's God, they receive curse, or they are already cursed, and they don't find the salvation out of their curse. Here, we have to recognize this: Paul, Apostle Paul, did not smell sweet to everyone. Paul didn't sweet. Paul didn't smell sweet, not just to pagan, but also some carnal Corinthian Christians. Marching with Jesus does not mean people will appreciate us and adore us. Let me repeat that: when we march with Jesus, that doesn't mean people will adore and uh, appreciate us. Actually, the closer you get to you go to God, the more conflicted some people feel towards you. The more we obedient to God, 
the more opposition, to, opposition we are to experience in life. Christian history demonstrates this fact that whenever faithful Christians serve God, very often they suffered obstruction and ridicules from other Christians. Not a non-Christians, but other Christians. One great example of that is John Wesley, the founder of a Methodist church, or the leader of a great English awakening movement, or Wesleyan or Methodist revival. You know, John Wesley made a famous statement, that is, the world is my parish. The world is my parish. It's a well-known you know, model. I've seen that in the many uh, mission conferences. They say, oh, just John Wesley saw the whole world as his parish. We are not just serving uh, one city, one country. You know, whole world is our, you know, uh, our ministry place. You know what John Wesley actually meant by the world? When John Wesley, you know, John Wesley did not mean by world, he did not mean the globe or the whole world. What he meant by the world is simply the countryside, anything where he can preach the gospel, that's the whole world. We are talking about street, outdoors, even taverns. Because whenever John Wesley went to preach the town, guess who usually resists his preaching? It's a town pastor, town Anglican priest. He said, this is my parish. I never invited you. How dare you to come to my town and preach the gospel? I already preached the gospel. They are the one who resisted and opposed of, uh, John Wesley's preaching. And very often, this Christian antagonist, they actually bribed and sent a local thugs. Local, you know, thugs. Goombas, we New Yorkers called, you know, you know, you know, this uh, wise guys, to John Wesley's, you know, service to disrupt the meeting. And uh, amazingly, you know, uh, what today's uh, charismatic Christian call, uh, the phenomenon such as a slaying in the spirit, you know, people just, just kind of uh, collapse without no reason, or some people, you know, cannot stop laughing, they call it holy laughter, all this kind of thing, it actually happened many times in John Wesley's revival meetings. And the most amazing thing is that John Wesley simply regarded this spiritual phenomena as a distraction from the gospel. Isn't it ironic? What John Wesley called distraction became a main attraction to many charismatic Christians like, uh, you know, IHOP, International House of Prayer. I almost said pancake, but, uh, you know, Pancake, at least, you, you know, I have, you, have, you enjoy the pancake, but I, I'm sorry. I'm not demeaning the charismatic Christians. But uh, their focus on this kind of, a, you know, this, this kind of very, very, uh, whatever they call the supernatural, you know, activity. John Wesley actually called it. That's a distraction. Most important thing in worship is Jesus Christ. Anything to distract from the gospel of Jesus Christ is a demonic work. That's what John Wesley said. And today... Charismatic Christian, they look for those things away from Christ. This is my, my, my challenge to them. You need to study the scripture and you need to study the history better. All right. That's not my point. I'm sorry if I become a self-righteous. This is what I want to say. 
You know, when you follow God with a commitment to a particular you know, vision of God, don't expect the people to applaud and say, that, Oh, you're doing great. No. Sometimes fellow Christians will really look at, will not really uh, respond to you kindly. Especially as a member of a house church committee or church. We have to recognize we are a peculiar church. We insist that biblically functioning church is a church with our house churches. And we reach out to VIPs through house church. We do evangelism and discipleship together as a house church. House church, house church, house church. That's what we are, along with our Kishapur College. To us, house church is not a small group program. It is our life. So no matter you know, what the seasons of life, we never stop meeting house churches. But to some Christians, this is a sort of a odd and too radical or too you know, stubborn or too persistent. Letter. And so, you know, I, I, re- I received a few you know, feedback about our house churches. And guess what? That's a badge of honor. Perfume. We are perfume of Christ in God's way. I want to say this. Do you like a perfume, by the way? The, perf- the, the key idea is a perfume. You know, I like a perfume. I actually use a particular perfume on Sunday morning because that's my holy incense. It's an expensive perfume my brother bought for me, so I only use it on Sunday morning. And also, when I, uh, uh, when, I, uh, uh, when I dated Jamie and I knew that I'm marrying her, uh, I bought a perfume. Because people say it's good to buy a perfume, expensive perfume to you know, your loved one. So guess what I bought? I bought Coco Chanel number no. five. I have here. I stole from Coco Chanel number no. five. So guys, you don't know what to give to your girlfriend. Here is idea, Coco Chanel number no. five, expensive. But problem is this, my problem, let me show you. This is a tiny, was expensive. I think it was close to $100. I bought it 27 years ago. Guess how much does it? Does it show you how much? It's still 20, for 27 years. This is how much Jamie used this Coco Chanel number no. 5. Why do I bring it this? No matter how expensive perfume you have, unless you I'm sorry, I cannot open this. This is a stuck. I'm sorry. I can't open this. Unless you open it, smell will not come out. Many of us, it's like a Jamie. You have the most precious fragrance, which is Jesus Christ, and you don't open it. How do you open it? How do we use our spiritual Coco Chanel number no. five? Let me quote. Vance Havner, a great American you know, evangelical pastor, said this. Do we have that quote? Yes. God uses broken things, broken soil to produce a crop, broken clouds to give a rain, broken grains to give bread, broken breast to give strength. Is a broken alabaster box that gives forth perfume. It is Peter weeping bitterly who returns to greater power than ever. 
the way that we share, we spread God's fragrance of Christ's love is when we break our selfishness, our self-centeredness with a sacrifice. We are the aroma of God, not in ourselves, but because of Christ in us. Ephesians 5.2 said, Walk in the way of the Lord, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ is the perfume. Let me look at me. Christ is a perfume. We are simply container. All of us are heart. There is a Christ. We need to open up and then let it out through breaking of our selfishness and our plans, our whatever, you know, personal you know, agenda. When we really break ourselves, fragrance of Christ will come out. Let me bring out the, quickly the last point. Paul said in verse 16, Who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not paddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with a sincerity as those who send from God. The Greek word, who is equal to such task, means who is qualified, worthy to such a task. Who is worthy of a, such a spreading fragrance of Christ? Paul did not answer the question, although he was qualified. Instead, Paul stated an important qualification and quality of a worthy proclaimers of the gospel of Christ. That is, we don't preach the gospel for money or selfish gains. We preach the gospel because we simply enjoy the gospel and we love the gospel. So last personnel Paul was pointing out is the soldiers who following the following the uh, the, vic the 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 victorious general and the, here we are not soldiers of a fortune we are soldiers of a faith we are the proclaimers of a Christ Paul said very clearly that he does not treat this apostolic calling as a trade he refused to make a material gain from his preaching the gospel. This was a well known. You read a 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14 to verse 4 to 15. We don't have time to look at it. Twice in there, Paul said, I did not use the right to earn money through preaching, even though I'm qualified for it. Paul said he didn't market the gospel with an eye to the bottom line. Paul did not monetize his ministry. Though actually, like many, we didn't paddle. This expression comes from the tip, uh, uh, the Paul's, Paul's different, distinguish, uh, differentiating his preaching the gospel from professional philosophers. Philosophers back then, they charged the tuition for, from their students. That's how they made a living. And some of you heard that Socrates' wife was uh, one of the three worst wives in human history. Reason for that is she nagged Socrates to charge money from his students and Socrates refused. Socrates actually believed the wisdom belongs to everybody and he welcomed everybody. He didn't charge anybody. Actually, Socrates is a great, you know, in a way, he's a really conscious man. He made his own living. 
He actually served as a professional soldier for Athenian army. And that's how his man and his wife was not happy because it's a popular. He couldn't make a fortune. So one time while he was teaching, she went behind him and she poured, a, I, 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 I find out that was a night chamber pot. You know what night chamber pot? Portable toilet. And that's how she got the nickname of the, you know, one of the three worst you know, wives in history. Point is, Paul was saying, we are not like uh, these wandering philosophers who make a fortune out of their teaching. Even though our philosophy is the wisdom of a life and it gives eternal life to everybody who accepts it, we don't do it for money. We do out of God's mercy, out of joy, out of, out of gratefulness. And so Paul used the word sincerely. Sincere. We will do this, we do our ministry sincerely. The Greek word sincerity is an interesting word. It, mean, it is a combination of a helio and krino. Helio is a sun. Krino is the exam. It simply means examining something through the sunlight. This is the uh, things that are, uh, that are the, what is it, the jewel, jewel, you know, uh, jewel, uh, jewelry, germ maker, uh, gym make, you know, jewelry makers, they check whether the, 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 the gym is the really, uh, gem has, uh, has any impurity in it. Simply put, sincerity means transparency. Transparency. We don't have any ulterior motive. We do it transparently. It means this. We serve others because Christ served us. Dear brothers and sisters, we are not mercenary Christians. We are not going after some kind of a success and glory here. We are missionary Christians. As a God sent Jesus Christ to us, and Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to us, with the Holy Spirit we are sent to the world to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. And when we march with Jesus, look at me, glory is ahead of us. We enjoy this glory today. We will enjoy this glory farther tomorrow. Every day, glory of God will grow in us. Dear Forest Church, we are blessed. You and I are so blessed. No matter how, how, how hard this pandemic is, but eternally, we are so blessed. Out of us, whatever, 7.5 billion people, we met Christ and Christ called us. We are captured by Christ and Christ called us to be his soldiers and his fragrance. You and I are more blessed than anybody in any time. Let us march with Christ in this difficult time and let's spread his fragrance everywhere we go to. Let's pray.